starting uh, a children's Christmas program uh, practice on Wednesday nights. So uh, try not to look around and say, where is everybody? They're all over the building. They're all here, but they're just in different rooms and places all over the building. But I'm glad you're here, and uh, it's great to see you uh, in the house of the Lord tonight, and we pray and trust that this service tonight is a blessing. I want to share with you folks a uh, some wonderful, wonderful news. Uh, it's truly a miracle, and uh, it just shows the the awesomeness of God, but also the kindness and the sweetness of God. Uh, to Candace Dunaway, uh, delivered two very healthy babies yesterday. Uh, the little girl, Gabriella, weighed, I believe, about six pounds and 13, 12 ounces, whatever it was. And uh, the little boy, Gabriel, weighed uh, close to six pounds. And uh, they're doing great tonight. And uh, most of you remember the story, the tremendous miracle that God performed for her during her pregnancy. Well, I'm glad to follow through and tell you that um, they're doing wonderful. And uh, I thank God for that. I think we ought to give God some praise for that. Amen. So um, let me make a few announcements real quick. If you'll remember our miracle uh, for you crusade begins Friday night, September the 16th at 7 o'clock, and uh, it'll be also be Saturday night at 7, and then, of course, Sunday at 11, and again, I ask you if you'll promote it on your Facebook page, whatever, whatever technology you have that you can communicate with friends and relatives, uh, please announce this. It's going to be a great time. Uh, also, um, uh, we will be receiving next Sunday... Uh, a special offering for uh, sound equipment, and then we're going to start making, uh, we're going to start putting money aside for lighting here in the building. And um, uh, so remember that next this coming Sunday, uh, we'll we'll receive a very special offering for that, and uh, all the monies that come in for that will go towards that, and uh, you'll see that in a few weeks. Um, also, Sister Donna Payjack would like to meet with all the parents who are going to have children in the children's Christmas program. Uh, she'd like to meet you with you tonight after church in classroom one. So if you'll remember that as soon as service is over tonight to meet her in classroom one, I think this is kids four through 12. And uh, she is going to be preparing, I think it's about a 40 minute uh, Christmas program uh, that will be presented on our Christmas service. And uh, they need to begin practicing for that. She wants to let you know about their practice schedules and all of that kind of thing. So if you would see her tonight after the church, after the service, that would be deeply appreciated right across the hall in classroom one. I am real excited tonight uh, about the Bible study material that I want to present to you. And uh, so I trust tonight that you've come uh, open-minded, if you can kind of clear the clutter. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some numbers and that kind of thing tonight. And uh, so if you can kind of clear the, the clutter and uh, kind of set up straight, listen with both ears, uh, this will be one of the most important Bible studies in prophecy, in my opinion, that you'll ever hear. I want to read tonight from Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 21. And we're going to be talking tonight about the precision of prophecy. The precision of prophecy. The Bible said, Daniel said, 
Daniel 9, verse 21, Yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, uh, more correctly, the angel Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplication, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Verse 24, notice very carefully and, and do your best to pay attention uh, to the rest of this reading. Gabriel told Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make up an end of sin and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks, Messiah shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince that shall come destroy the city uh, and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. I know that this is probably a, maybe a confusing uh, series of scriptures, but I want to stress to you tonight as we begin that Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, in my opinion, is the most powerful four scriptures you'll ever read on prophecy anywhere else in the Bible. The 70 weeks of Daniel. And, and I hope you'll have a better understanding of it tonight. The 70 weeks of Daniel is some of the most, it, well, first of all, it is the backbone of all Bible prophecy. Uh, you'll see that in just a moment. I want to show you how precise God was with the Jewish people. And he is still being very precise here today. So to fully appreciate the remarkable significance of the following material. It is essential to realize that the book of Daniel, as part of the Old Testament, was translated into Greek prior to 270 B.C., approximately 270 years before Jesus was born, almost 300 years before Jesus was born. This Old Testament book was translated into Greek almost three centuries before Christ was born. This fact is well established in, in, in even secular history. Let me continue. After 
his conquest of the Babylonian Empire, Alexander the Great promoted the Greek language throughout that known part of the world. If any of you have been through Bible study, you know that. The huge accomplishment of the Greek conquest was to the earmark of, of their great accomplishment was to teach that known part of the world the Greek language. So listen, listen very carefully. When Alexander the Great began to promote the Greek language throughout that known part of the world, almost everyone, including Jewish people, spoke Greek. That is why you hear continually that the New Testament was written in Greek. That was the common language even among Jewish people of that day. Hebrew, the language of Hebrew, fell into disuse and was virtually only reserved for ceremonial purposes. So in order to make the Jewish scriptures, what we call essentially the Old Testament, available to the average Jewish reader, a project was undertaken under the sponsorship of Ptolemy II Philadelphus, uh, and he translated, he had the Hebrew Old Testament scripture translated into Greek. Listen very carefully. He chose 70 scholars and commissioned them to complete this work, and the result of that work is known today as the Septuagint. The word Septuagint is just the Greek word for our word 70. It is just simply referred to as the Septuagint translation or the 70 translation, meaning that the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek uh, by these scholars, uh, and it is just called the Septuagint. If you ever are studying scripture and you read that word in a commentary, that it says in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is just simply a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The book of Daniel is actually one of the most authenticated books of the Old Testament, both historically and archaeologically. It is absolutely, has been documented, proven, irrefutable. Uh, you can't argue with it. Uh, it is absolutely uh, one of the most proven books of the Old Testament. It's critical to understand and to realize that the book of Daniel existed in documented form almost three centuries before Christ was born. The reason I'm going through this presentation is because there's, there's strong pockets and elements of people in our society today that says that those four verses in Daniel chapter 9 24 through 27, is not, was not prophecy. That actually the book of Daniel was written during the time of Christ, and so whoever wrote the book knew when these things were happening, and it was not really prophecy. That is not true. The book of Daniel has been proven to have been written almost 300 years before Jesus was born. Are you all with me? Okay. So Daniel was praying one day, and he had a visit. Gabriel came to visit him. Daniel, when the Jewish people were deported from Israel, or excuse me, Judah, to Babylon, Daniel was a teenager when that happened. We know that they were in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. 
So by now, Daniel is a very elderly man. He's been there for 70 years, so he would be in excess of 80 years old. After reading the book of Jeremiah, and you can look up these prophecies if you want to, but Jeremiah had prophesied that Judah would be carried away into captivity into Babylon, and they would be there for 70 years. Daniel read that, and he understood that the 70 years of captivity were almost over, and at this time, in Daniel chapter 9, he begins to pray for his Jewish nation, that they're almost at the end of that 70-year captivity, and their future is in their hands. While he was praying, he was repenting. He was repenting on behalf of the Jewish people. Gabriel came to him during that prayer, interrupted him, and gave him a four-verse prophecy that is unquestionably the most remarkable passage in the entire Bible, if you will. These four verses include the following segments. In Daniel 9.24, you have the scope of the entire prophecy that Gabriel was giving to Daniel. In verse 25, he referred to 69 weeks. Now, I want everybody to understand when you talk about Daniel's 70 weeks, that's not talking about 77-day weeks. It's talking about a, a prophetical week that is applicable to this verse of Scripture. One week equals seven years. So it's instead of a day, it's a year. So if you talk about uh, one week, it, it's not seven days, it's seven years. Does everybody understand that? Uh, I hope you do. It's going to be very important that you do. So in verse 25, he refers to 69 of those 70 weeks, one week equaling seven years, and then 69 weeks would be 69 times seven or would be 483 years. And I hope you can see uh, what I'm referring to on the screen. In verse 26, pay attention. In verse 26, there is an interval or a gap. A lot of commentaries call it a parentheses. In verse 26, there's an interval, there's a gap, there's parentheses between the 69th and 70th week. I hope to get into that next Wednesday night if I can finish this material tonight. And then verse 27 talks about the 70th week. So let me give you the scope of it. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, the Bible said that 70 weeks... That would be 490 years. 490 years. Keep that number in your head for a few moments. 70 weeks or 490 years, that would be 70 times 7. 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. He's, he's, Gabriel is speaking to Daniel. Daniel is a Jew and he is speaking uh, about the Jewish people. He's speaking about the Jews' holy city, which is Jerusalem. Went on to say, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make a reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. The idiom of a week of years was common in Israel as a Sabbath for the land. God instituted the Sabbath literally in the creation process. He created for six days, and on the seventh day he rested and referred to that as a Sabbath day. So the Jews were instructed to always take the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy as one of the Ten Commandments. And then they were to give the land rest. 
every seven years. And then every 49th year, on the 50th year, they had the, 50, the uh, year of Jubilee. So the Jews understood the idiom of a week of years was common uh, it, as a Sabbath for the land. The Jews quit honoring the Sabbath principle. They, they, they quit honoring it. They started working on Sunday and forget about giving the land rest and all that. God warned them and warned them. They still didn't obey. And this is what caused them to be carried away into captivity and to Babylon for 70 years. So God is using that number 7 and 70 and their understanding. The Jews knows, they know what this means uh, a whole lot more than we do. And I'll comment a little bit more on that in just a moment. But it was their failure to obey the laws of the Sabbath that led God to sending them into captivity under the Babylonians. So note that the focus of this passage Gabriel said to Daniel, it's on thy people and thy holy city. That is, upon Israel and Jerusalem. You have to understand, and some of you may disagree. Um, you have the right to disagree. You also have the right to be wrong. Uh, but uh, this whole thing is for the Jewish people. I've taught this for years, and I, I still uh, take this point of view with it. I've studied unbelievable quantities of material, and this is the most adequate interpretation, clear interpretation of this. The Bible is very clear. Gabriel was very clear to Daniel. This, what is going to happen, is going to be upon thy people and upon thy holy city. You folks have to understand when you're studying Bible prophecy as to who that prophecy is for. Who is God speaking to? When he pours out blessing, who is he speaking to? When he's pouring out judgment, who is he speaking to? And so you'll find in end-time Bible prophecy that there's three categories of people that God's working with. He's working with Jews, he's working with Gentiles, and he's working with the church, which is who we are right now. The spiritual bride, those that's been born again, Gentile people born into the kingdom of water and spirit. These prophecies does not pertain to the church. That's why I teach in Matthew 24, Luke 21, when Jesus had that private uh, conversation with the disciples, uh, at least four of them, um, and gave them all of the stuff to do with the end time, the vast majority of that, in my opinion, if not all of that, is to the Jewish people. I, I continually have people show me stuff. See, this is going to happen to us right here. It's going to happen to us. No, it's not. That's not about us. All of what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 has its root begetting in this scripture setting right here. And we have to understand that. Okay, let me continue. I've got to hurry. So you'll notice that the scope of this prophecy includes a broad list of things which clearly have yet to be completed. Um, when, when he said to finish a transgression, make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, all that. That hasn't happened yet. The Jews hasn't got to that point yet in, in Bible prophecy. So there's some more things that's yet to be completed. But he did focus in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, he focused on the first 69 weeks or the first 483 years of this 490-year prophecy. He focused on the 483-year part of it. 
with very specific prediction. Notice verse 25 again. He said, know therefore and understand. Listen very carefully, folks. He said, know therefore, Daniel, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, which is 49 years. That's the first seven weeks he mentioned. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then three score and two weeks, which would be an additional 434 years. So if you add 49 plus 434, you'll come up with 483 years from that would pass from the time that a, com a commandment would go forth for the Jews to begin to rebuild their city and their temple, there would be 483 years that would pass to the day that the Messiah would come as their king. Again, I'm showing you the unbelievable precision of prophecy. So you have to do a little bit of math here, and this is where I asked you earlier to kind of clear your head. It includes a mathematical prophecy. This was not new to Daniel or to the Jewish people. The Jews understood the 70 times 7 concept. We don't understand it that much, but they did, and I'll show you why. Daniel's 70 weeks means a week of years or that a day equals a year. So a prophetical week equals seven years, not seven days. So notice the 70 times sevens of Israel. Let's begin with Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. When he left Haran, believing in the promise of God, he was 75. Paul said in Galatians 3.17 that there was 430 years that passed. From the time Abraham received that promise at 75 until the giving of the law of Moses. That equals 505 years. But if you subtract the 15 year segment of Ishmael's life from that number, you get 490 years, 70 times 7. So from Abraham to the Exodus, or from Abraham to the giving of the law of Moses, essentially was 490 years, okay? So let's begin now at the Exodus when they were uh, leaving from the time they left Egypt to the beginning of the, of the building of Solomon's temple. Listen very carefully. From when they left Egypt to the beginning of the building of Solomon's temple was 594 years. It took them seven years to complete Solomon's temple. So that equals 601 years. But if you subtract the, the times of captivity they had in the book of Judges, which was in Mesopotamia for eight years, the Moabites 18 years, the Canaanites 20, the Midianites 7, the Ammonites 18, and the Philistines 40, that equals 111 years. If you subtract that from 601 years, you get 490 years. So the Jews understood the 70 times 7 principle. Now, you will be familiar with this. Jesus asked his disciples, how many times in a day should you forgive someone? You understand that? They understood 
this principle. We don't get it too much because we don't study it. But it was pounded into their head, and they knew that God was on track with them. Daniel read it in Jeremiah that they would be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And coming to the end of that 70, he realized that Israel now had their future back in their hands. What were they going to do with it? And that's when Gabriel came and revealed these things to him. Okay. So let me spend a few moments talking to you about the division of the 70 weeks. There's three divisions of the 70 weeks. Keep in mind that the 70 weeks of Daniel actually equals 490 years. So there's three divisions of it. There's a seven-week or 49-year division. Then there's a 62-week division. And then there is a one-week or seven-year division. The first division... 49 years, 7 weeks or 49 years, concluded, the first division of Daniel's 70 weeks concluded with the last inspired words of the Old Testament ending or concluding with the book of Malachi. So from the time Daniel received this prophecy until the final inspired words of Malachi was 49 years. The second division is 62 weeks or 434 years. You folks have to understand, and if you can understand it, it's just amazing to me how God does this stuff. But the second division is 62 weeks or 434 years, and that terminated when the Messiah was cut off or when he was crucified. So if you take the first two divisions, it equals 69 weeks or 483 years or... 173,880 days. So from the time Daniel, or, or for, excuse me, from the time that Artaxerxes, I'm going to come to this in a moment in more detail, gave Daniel a decree to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the wall of the temple in the city. From that day, until the day that Jesus was crucified, was exactly 173,880 days. Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read the Scripture? I want to stop right here, and, and, and I want to somehow impress on you. We spend hours on Facebook and we spend hours on the internet and we spend hours doing menial stuff that don't mean 10 cents of anything to anybody, bottom line. If we could read the scripture and know it like God wants us to know it, this church would be packed out there tonight. If we understood and really believed what was coming to this planet eminently, in my opinion, it would shake us to our very core. All right. Jesus said to the Jews, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Who can start a clock ticking and stay on exact schedule? For 173,880 days. 
we can't keep our schedule straight for a week. And God did it for 483 years in a day. When you look at all of the things, and 400 of those years was without any inspired word of God. So in effect, well, let me finish verse 43. Jesus went on to say, Therefore I say unto you, to the Jewish people, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So he told them, you didn't get it. You didn't read the scripture. You didn't get it. So I'm going to take it away from you, Jewish people, and I'm going to give it to the Gentile people. And I will spread my gospel around the world through Gentile people. And you will sit in blindness until I'm done with the Gentile people. All right, so in effect, Gabriel told Daniel that the interval between the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah as king would be 173,880 days. I do want to just throw a little side note in here. Uh, the King James Version says, refer to Christ as Messiah the Prince. Uh, in the King James Version, it's actually the Meshiach Najid or Messiah the King. It's the same terminology that's used for King Saul. So it should have been Messiah the King. But notice, the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem was given by Artaxerxes uh, Longamanus to Nehemiah on March the 14th, 445 B.C. It took Nehemiah away from the Persian court for 12 years to lead this project. The book of Nehemiah tells the whole story. The emphasis in this verse is on the street and the wall, which to avoid confusion with other earlier mandates or decrees uh, that was confined to rebuilding the temple. Here's what I'm talking about. When you study the Old Testament during this time, you'll find that there were four decrees given by three different kings to go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. People who believe in the very mixed up and convoluted doctrine of preterism, uh, a preterist believes that the totality of the book of Revelation was fulfilled in 70 AD, which essentially takes all of our hope away from any kind of a future. They, they, get, they play with these decrees. But I want you to notice, have you noticed the Bible is very clear. The first decree that went back, that went forth to go and rebuild Jerusalem was from Cyrus in 537 B.C. in Ezra 12, or Ezra verse 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The second decree was by Darius in Ezra chapter 6 and also um, in chapter 8 and, and so on. The third decree was by Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. in Ezra chapter 7. But the one we're paying attention to tonight was given by Artaxerxes a little bit later in 445 B.C. in Nehemiah chapter 2, 5 through 8, verse 17 and verse 18. The first three decrees were to rebuild the temple only. And only the last one given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah was to rebuild the city and the walls. And that's what Gabriel prophesied. That from the time a commandment's going to go forth to go and rebuild the city and the walls of Jerusalem and so on, from that time a clock is going to start ticking. And it's not going to stop ticking 
until 173,880 days had passed. <clears throat> so why the first division of Daniel's 70 weeks of seven weeks and then 62 weeks? The first division was to bring about and to establish the end of the Old Testament. The Jewish people would know that all of the context of the Jewish, of, of the Jewish Old Testament is over. It's done. God is stepping in now to a new arena. Because they did not convert properly even when they left Babylon. They went through the 400 years of silence. Jesus was born. They rejected him. And God ultimately turned to the Gentiles, which is where we are today. But you'll notice, and, and it's, we've, we've heard the triumphal entry story all of our lives. But during the ministry of Jesus... There were several occasions in which the people attempted to promote him as king, but he always carefully avoided it by saying, mine hour is not yet come. Because Jesus knew there was a clock ticking and 173,880 days had to pass. It couldn't be shorter than that. And he knew that. So he would say, my hour's not come. Then one day, Jesus meticulously arranges it. I want you folks to understand, consider King Herod trying to kill Jesus when he was born, and consider the times they tried to throw him off of a cliff, and, and the hardness and blindness of the Jewish people, and how they so, in convoluted fashion, misinterpreted the law of Moses, and you had the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was a big mess. It did not stop God's calendar. God went on and pursued and proceeded with his plan. And then on the day of triumphal entry, do you remember Jesus told a couple of his disciples, you're going to go and meet a man, he's going to be doing certain things, and tell him the master needs his donkey. I don't know what that means to you, but it, it just really lights me up because this man that loaned Jesus his donkey, whoever he was, had no clue what the significance of that donkey ride was going to mean that day. So Jesus got on that donkey, and he began to ride through Jerusalem, deliberately fulfilling a prophecy by Zechariah that the Messiah would present himself as king in just that way. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the Bible said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And they did. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. And they did. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass, and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Whenever we might easily miss the significance of what's going on, the Pharisees come to our rescue. They felt that the overzealous crowd was blaspheming, proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, the king, and so on. Don't you remember they cried out, Jesus, thou son of David? They were admitting all of this stuff, folks. And Jesus had already indicted them. Didn't you never read in the scripture? I think some of them were doing it, just getting caught up in the moment. They didn't know what they were doing, but Jesus knew what was going on. He knew that on that day, 173,880 days had passed. The dotting of the I and the crossing of a T when he rode the streets of Jerusalem on that donkey. The Pharisees came and said, tell these people to hold their peace. 
But Jesus endorsed their praise because he knew the significance of that day. And Jesus said in Luke 19 verse 40, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus was going to be worshipped as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of the Jews, God manifest in flesh, however you want to say it. He was going to be worshipped like that that day. Nothing was going to stop it. And if the Jews didn't do it, the stones would cry out and do it because prophecy had to be fulfilled. 173,880 days had passed and that occasion had to happen. Folks, this is the precision of prophecy. This is the only occasion, the only time that Jesus presented himself as king. And it occurred on April the 6th, 32 A.D., exactly when we examine the period between March the 14th, 445 B.C., when Artaxerxes Philadelphus gave Nehemiah the decree to go to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. That was March the 14th, 445 B.C., 100 Y'all going to remember this number by the time you leave here tonight. 173,880 days had passed, equaling April the 6th, 32 A.D. When you correct for leap years, you discover that it is exactly to the minute 173,880 days. How could have Daniel known this in advance? How could anyone have contrived to have this detailed prediction documented over three centuries in advance. There's more of the story. There's more to it than that. This is what I want you to understand. I would suppose that every person in this building tonight would agree that everything I've taught out of our Holy Bible has been true. You can study Nehemiah chapter 2, and you can read for yourself where Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes, gave Nehemiah that decree to go back and re rebuild Jerusalem, the walls, the streets, and so on, as the prophecy said, as Gabriel told Daniel he would. From that time until Jesus rode through Jerusalem was 173,880 days. Somebody do the odds on that happening. So if those first 69 weeks of Daniel has come to pass precisely, precisely. Let me ask you tonight to answer. What is going to preclude the last week of Daniel's prophecy from coming to pass? I will say this tonight. God gave the Jews a date, and he gave it to them plenty. They didn't know. They didn't understand. That same crowd, listen to Pastor tonight, that same crowd waving palm branches and willow branches that represented their exodus from Egypt and all of that. And they threw their coats on the ground so the donkey could ride over them. And they worshipped our son of David, and the king of the Jews, and they worshipped him and gave it all up to him, man. It was a great moment. It was a great day. And Jesus went to their temple and cleansed it for them. 
He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Their worship drove him there. A week later, that same crowd was screaming, crucify him, crucify him. I can't get my head around that. How can a person backslide to that degree in a week? From total exception, or from total uh, accepting him, acceptance of him, to total rejection. One week, seven days, they did it. And then said to Pilate, let his blood be on us. How do you do that? They didn't understand. God gave them almost, he gave them a 483-year notice. I'm coming that day. Be ready, I'm coming. So in my mind, God gave them a date and it didn't work. So God said, no more dates. I'm not telling you the next time I'm coming. I'll give you some signs, but you will not know the time nor the hour. I hope you folks are understanding the meaning with more depth and clarity of the things that Jesus said in his ministry when he said that no man knows the day nor the hour that the Son of Man cometh. He said that on purpose. I gave you one date and you missed it. I'm not giving you another one. You're just going to have to be ready anytime. And that's where we are today. So I'm going to ask the question again. If God is able to bring to pass 483 years, so precise to the day, what makes you think that that last seven-year period, that last one week of Daniel 78 did not arrive? There's people sitting here tonight that don't no more believe that than flying to the moon. You can't see it. You just can't see how our world is going to be thrown into a time of turmoil that you can't even relate to. And we're sitting here trying to argue with scriptures, and does this apply to me, and do I have to do this? And I have to, I'm going to tell you, folks, if God asks you to jump on your head and gargle peanut butter and whistle Dixie and stack greasy DBs, you ought to hop to it if it's going to get you from here to heaven. If you knew what was coming, if you knew what was coming, so Jesus approached the city on the donkey. And at the end of that ride, in Luke chapter 19, verse 43, Jesus said to them, For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and cast thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because you knew not the time of your visitation. I gave you a date and you didn't show up. He told them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. How many showed up to see it? The greatest moment on this planet was when Jesus came out of that tomb and there was not one soul there to witness it except two angels. They didn't get it. And I'm telling you folks, I'm passionate. I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm harping. I'm just passionate here tonight. I don't want to get on a soapbox as bad as I want to. I'm not going to do it. But we're in the same predicament. As the spirit of Laodicea hits the church across the board, I saw something Sunday morning that just absolutely blew me out of my mind, and I'm still shaking and trembling over it. I don't get it. I don't understand what people are doing and the decisions they make and why they do what they do. I don't understand all of that. But I do know that Jesus promised, Paul promised, 
that there's going to be a rapture. And Jesus gave us a whole bunch of signs. And I, I taught this several weeks ago. If the Jews thinks their Messiah is soon to come, he's coming to get us seven years before that happens. How close do you think we are? said, you knew not, so I'm not giving you any more dates. So Messiah, of course, was cut off. He was executed at the crucifixion, but the Bible said not for himself. He did it for us. The city and the sanctuary was destroyed 38 years later, exactly like Jesus said, when the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian leveled the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., precisely as Daniel and Jesus had prophesied. And then Jesus spoke to the Jews in Luke chapter 19, verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. What the Jews didn't know is that they were going to spiral downward for, for the next 2,000 years before he would come back again. I'm talking to you tonight about the, 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 the precision of prophecy. It's coming to pass. All of this stuff came to pass exactly like Jesus and others prophesied. How long would this blindness last? Listen to Pastor. In Romans 11.25, Paul said, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Again, in my opinion, in my perspective, when Cornelius showed up, at the gate of Simon's house where Peter was sleeping upstairs and rattled that gate and said, we want what you Jews have. And God filled them with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 10. It started another clock ticking. There's another clock ticking. And God didn't give the date on the alarm when the alarm goes off on this one. But we do know it's called a rapture. And that time is about expired. I keep saying these things. I keep saying, I try to say it in every way I can. I'm, I'm proved to you globally that we're living right at the midnight hour. Globally, we are. According to the nation of Israel, we are. I wish I could talk to you about Iran looking for their 12th and final I mean that will essentially be, in my opinion, the Antichrist. Our whole world is getting ready for a global market and a global economy, which is going to bring us to the Antichrist. It's all, do you see that globally? The nation of Israel. What used to be Persia, now Iran. They're looking for a leader that will unify our planet. And that leader is going to do battle against the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the mystery of iniquity. It's premeditated sinful action. It's causing all this to happen. It's coming to pass in front of our very eyes. And somehow we don't see it. Our eyes are glazed over. We still live like we want to live, do like we want to do. And we're thinking that we're going to be here another hundred years. I think it's okay to plan that way. But you ought to live like it's going to happen in the next five minutes. There's going to be a lot of people disappointed when you hear the sound of the trumpet go off and your feet don't leave the ground.
as carefully as we can examine the word of God, Jesus' specific words, it appears that he held them. He held the Jews. Listen to pastor and I'm, I'm concluding. He held them accountable to understanding that prophecy of Daniel, 173,880 days. He held them accountable because he said, you knew not the time of your visitation. I gave you a 483-year advance notice you visited. You understand that could be at least 10 generations of people and no one did anything. <coughs> they didn't get it. And I wonder how many of us here tonight have given it. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm being real. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> There's still one more week of Daniel 70 weeks to be fulfilled. We haven't got there yet. It's the 70th week. This remaining seven-year period is yet to be fulfilled. This seven-year period, listen to pastor. Listen to me tonight. My voice is going to ring in your ear if you miss the rapture. It's going to ring in your ear. The 70th and final week of Daniel's 70 weeks is the most documented period of time in the entire Bible. It's that important. There's not a more, there's not another specific time in the Bible that's more documented than Daniel's 70th week. The book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, gives very detailing things that's going to happen during this very climactic period of time. During Daniel's 70th week, there's going to be seven trumpets of judgment poured out, seven seals of judgment, and seven vials of judgment. There's three woes in there in the course of those judgments that John was not even allowed to tell us about because it was just too far off the chart. That's yet ahead of us. I'm trying to reason with you folks. Isaiah said, come down, let us reason. I'm trying to reason. If the first 69 weeks of these 70 has already come to pass with precise, impeccable precision, what makes you think the final seven-year period is not going to happen? Gabriel said specifically in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, that 490 years or 79 weeks is going to be poured out on, the, on your people. We've already gone through 483 years of that. There's been a gap or parentheses. I'm going to get into that next Wednesday night, and it's called the church age. Daniel didn't see it. Revelation covered it in Revelation 2 and 3, but Daniel didn't see it in Nebuchadnezzar's image. But there's a gap between the 69 and 70th week. 483 years of this prophecy has been fulfilled of the dotting of the I and the crossing of the T. There's one more week. There's seven more years. And it's called the Great Tribulation. One scripture setting in the Old Testament calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And this world is going to see a side of God they've never seen before. How can we not believe that and understand that? When 483 years of it's already happened, just exactly like God said. 
we know there's an interval between the 69th and 70 weeks, and it continues. That's where we are right now. But increase, it's, it's increasingly apparent that it may soon be over. The more one is familiar with the numerous climactic themes of end-time prophecy, the more it seems that the Daniel's 70th week is on the horizon. So I'm going to ask every person here in this building tonight, are you doing your homework? Are you ready? Is your family ready? You folks don't. I want to teach Revelation 6 through 19 before we're done with this study. I want to show you what's coming. You understand that in the tribulation period that there's going to be a time segment that's going to pass through those seven years. That 25% to 33% of our world's population is going to be terminated during that time. If you're here, the odds aren't in your favor that you'll survive it. We know the Jews will. A lot of them, a lot of them is going to be destroyed, but they will. There will be a remnant that survives. It is going to be a time that's going to blister mankind like they've never known. And for us to sit down with the word of God and try to analyze it and take it apart and put it under a microscope, and I'm not sure. I'm trying to tell you tonight that our world is coming to another time of visitation from God himself. But the next time he comes, it's not coming to be nice like it was at Calvary. He's coming to get ugly because he's had his feel of the mystery of iniquity that's been at work against him since Nimrod came on the scene in Genesis 11. Folks, we've got to be ready. We've got to get our family ready. I believe the sounding of the trumpet could happen at any moment the Jews are ready for their Messiah I mean our president is pushing us hard I'm, I believe he's pushing us hard into US bankruptcy to literally crush the economy of, of our country so that we have to pair up with Europe and put all of our resources together so we can survive that brings back the revival of the Roman Empire the Bible prophesied that would happen and we come to church and kind of stare straight ahead with our eyes glazed over and we shout and dance when Jesus comes into the house riding on the donkey and we worship and oh yeah God's the Lord of my life and then a week later we're doing something totally adverse to that I don't understand I don't get it what's happened to the minds of people preachers that knows more about all this stuff than I do they can run circles around me and they're doing Excuse my expression, but things that I, I, I bonehead things. I sat down with dinner uh, a few days ago with somebody, and, they, and one of our most prevalent preachers in our organization are just just doing stupid stuff, man. We're live, we're we're here to the final countdown. It's it's eleven fifty nine. Uh, the uh, the rapture's imminent, man, and people are doing stuff like it ain't a big deal. I don't get it. I, I want to be ready. <laughs> you understand that? We avoid the book of Revelation like a plague because we're scared of it. And it scares you to death when you read it. But if you'll show up on Wednesday nights here in the next few weeks, I'm going to tell you what it says to the best of my ability. I want you to understand what you will face if you miss the rapture. And if I have to do it, I'll do it. But I'd love to scare the living daylights out of some people here tonight. It ain't time to play. It's not time to play. It's time to make your calling and election sure. We need to embrace the mind of, of, of Joshua, 
when he said, you people can go back on the other side of the Red Sea and Jordan if you want to, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. I pray to God tonight that we can be ready. God, help us to be ready. God, help us to be ready. If you will stand with me tonight. Had a wonderful conversation about three hours last night to about midnight last night with someone not a part of this church. We got into that long conversation and I, I told this person that even Brother Merrill and I sometimes have this conversation. Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like when your time comes to die? Don't want to be morbid, just bear with me. This is why we're living for God, you understand. So that when that time comes for you to make your exit out of this world, can you imagine this person described his parent as completely, mind was gone, curled up in a fetal position, had been like that for several years, and I had the person was even living. And I asked this person, I said, can you imagine what it was like when your dad finally breathed his last breath here? And just like that, woke up over there. I don't think we understand. We can't get our head around that either. But then on the flip side of that, can you imagine? I'll never forget a sermon Brother Wickreiser preached here a number of years ago when we were in Baker. That when you miss an opportunity, you've missed it forever. He talked about being in an airport, got all absorbed in a book. His airplane came and went without him. He missed it. He'll never have that opportunity again. He got on another plane and went on. But he missed that opportunity. Jesus told him, Teacher, you had an opportunity. And I told you when it was coming. And you missed it. You missed it. Can you imagine? Just try to think for a moment. When you hear something that's a strange sound. And you start calling people you know that are saved and they don't answer. And you turn on your television set or your radio or whatever. And the news is coming out that there's millions of people missing off this planet. And it dawns on you. You missed it. Is what you're doing now worth it? To miss I get pulled oftentimes by a lot of preacher friends to lighten up on the message. Old-fashioned. It's not a biblical concept, but it makes sense to me. I'd rather land 30 yards inside the kingdom, the pearly gates, and God look at me and say, you know, there's a lot of that stuff you did down there you didn't have to do. That's okay. I'd rather have it that way and to miss it by half an inch. Do you hear me tonight? Paul continually talked about people that God would bring them a strong delusion and they'd believe a lie and be damned. You have to know the truth before you can believe a delusion. You have to have some form of truth before your mind can be deluded into something else. And there's going to be people that has tasted of this awesome gospel, gospel message going to miss the rapture over something stupid and meaningless. 
the rich man say, could you send Lazarus to bring me one drop? So, if you're not right, you'll get left. So it's imperative that we're right with God. I want you to lift your hands all over the building. If you want to pray, you can pray however you want right now. But I'm asking you tonight, if there's anything between you and God, would you get it right right now? Wherever you stand, if there's something going on in your life, would you ask God to please help? God, this building tonight is filled with people who are so hungry and, God, they want to, but they've been misguided by their own perception, their own preferences. I pray that you would speak to their heart, oh God. It's not about what we can get by with, but God, it's what are we willing to do. Help us to become kingdom-minded, that God will be what you want us to be. We'll do what you want us to do. Help us, oh God, to sink our heart, our minds, our faith, our future, our lives, our plans. And to these awesome promises as you made, God, help us to hear that prophetical clock ticking. And if you brought all of these things to pass precisely as you said you would, then how much more should we know and believe that the rest of it is going to be brought to pass just like you said? God, we've got to be ready. God, we've got to be ready. I'm going to ask you to pray again, folks. I, I just I feel burdened here tonight. We've got to be ready. I'm going to ask everybody to pray. God, in the name of Jesus, help us. God, move in this church. God, move in this church. God, move in this church. Speak to our hearts, oh God. Speak to our lives. Help us to understand. Help us to understand that you're coming like a thief in the night. You're not going to tell us when you're coming. We have to just be ready. We've got to be ready. Help us to be, oh God, like the five wise virgins who had oil in their lamps and they were ready when the bridegroom came. I pray, God, that you would speak to this church, speak to this pulpit. Help us, oh God, to be more passionate, more fervent, more determined about the kingdom of God, the will of God in our lives, our destiny in you. Help us to pursue these things, to lay aside frivolous things, things that weights and sins which does so easily beset us. Help us, God, to be right. Help us to be right with you. Help us to be right in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. God bless you tonight. To our guest here tonight. Uh, we